wonderful singing and praying with you all again tonight. I'm just really uh, amazed at the uh, number and quality of song leaders that you guys have here. Uh, a little bit envious of that with the ability and the energy with which these guys lead the congregation. That's a, that's a blessing, and I appreciate it so very, very much. And again, thank all of you for being here tonight, and I'm looking forward to the study this evening particularly. I uh, spent some time today reworking this sermon. It's actually a kind of a conglomeration of a, of a couple of sermons that I preach, and so uh, buckle your seatbelts. We may be here for a while. Um, we're in a series, though, it's from Psalm 42, where the, the psalmist describes the difficulties of life just keep coming and coming and coming at him and has the tendency, as we know they do, to wear us down. And what, we, what we're trying to do in each of these lessons are uh, throw out some life preservers, some life vests, some lifelines, something that we can hold on to, truths that we can grip that will keep us afloat when the storms of life are blowing. And so tonight we're going to focus our attention on this truth. God's not indifferent. God is not indifferent to our suffering, to our troubles, to our fears, to our worries, to even our, our doubts. God is mindful of all of these things, and his desire is not that any of us should perish, that any of us should drown, that any of us should go under in the storms of life, but rather that we would persevere and stay afloat and do so until the very final breath that we draw. And so in Psalm 42, which again is the basis of this series, we find the writer describing a season of life that he is enduring in which he feels like God has forgotten him. That's what it looked like to his enemies. In fact, they say in verse 10 of Psalm 42, where is your God? They're taunting him, he says, all day long. Where is your God? And maybe you've had experiences like that with people in your life who have seen some of the struggles and difficulties that you're going through. And they ask you, well, where's, where's God in the middle of all the things that you're going through and sort of thrown the situation that you're enduring in your face? And that's a stinging thing to try to, to grapple with. But even more difficult is when some of those same thoughts begin to rise up in our own mind, and the psalmist has that experience as well. In the verse prior to verse 10, he says in verse 9, I have, I've said to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I think it's interesting here, and we find this in other psalms as well, where the psalmist expresses this this sense that he is experiencing of, uh, of, of feeling like he's been forgotten. But it's, it's not so much a, a despairing of faith as it is a faithful despair. Do you, do you see the difference? He's crying out to his rock, to his, to his anchor, holding on to his lifeline. And, and he's, he's crying out to God and asking him sincerely this question, why have you forgotten me or why does it seem like I have been abandoned and, and forgotten? Why am I going through an experience that would cause those around me to look, look and look and, and taunt your God? I think a lot of time that that kind of experience or that sort of sentiment and feeling rises up within us when there is a gap between what we expected to happen and what we are experiencing in life. 
we, we, we sometimes enter into the Christian life and sometimes because people who do what I do for a living give people false ideas about what the Christian life is about. Many of those that you might watch on TV, which we call health and wealth or prosperity preachers, give the idea that if you become a Christian, most of your troubles are just going to go away. And that even in this life, you're just going to be living a wrinkle-free, trouble-free existence as soon as you become a Christian. And people think that that's what Christianity is all about. And, and they are shocked to discover that after they begin their journey of faith, that more troubles, not less, are often the consequence of that decision. And so there is what I expected to have happen, and then there's the reality of my experience, and there's a gap between the two, and that's where our concern, our fear, our worry, and our doubts begin to creep in. And we may find ourselves like the psalmist asking, why have you forgotten me, God? Well, that's where we saw Elijah last night, wasn't it? He'd had those mountaintop experiences, that literal mountaintop experience in which everything was going right for him and he was having what I call a there's God moment. We often see good things happen in our life and we say, well, God was involved in that. That was a God thing is an expression that people were using about a decade ago. Every time something really came together just right, and, and I don't fault that. I like to give God credit when good things are happening in my life. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so, yes, it's, it's good to praise God when things are going good. But we can become so accustomed at times to those there's God moments that when the bottom falls out, then suddenly we find ourselves in a where's God moment. And that's where Elijah found himself when, when uh, uh, Jezebel put that bounty on his head and he began to run for his life as we talked about it last night. And he's not the only one in the Bible who experiences this kind of change in, in his expectation and his experience. In fact, there's a New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament character, Elijah. Does anybody remember who that is? Elijah in the Old Testament, we've got John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, as he's popularly called in the New Testament. And he comes in the spirit and the power and the likeness of Elijah preparing the way of the Lord. And he has a literal, there's God moment when Jesus appears to be baptized at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the riverside there and he points out to him and says, behold or look, stand it on, be amazed, there he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's a there's God moment. And John the Baptist is excited and he has the privilege and honor, reluctantly, but still the privilege and honor of, of baptizing Jesus and getting help, getting his ministry up and running, having prepared the way of the Lord. And like most Jews of John's time, he expected that when the Messiah came, he was going to establish a very earthly sort of kingdom that would be militaristic in nature, that would gather an army of Jews that would be able to defeat the Gentile overlords who had invaded their land and desecrated it. They would drive the Romans out and, and the, that Israel would once again be at the head and not the tail, be on the top and not the bottom. And so he really, I think, at this point in his life thought that things were about to unfold in a way that he had read the prophets to, to mean that, that everything was just about on that moment going to, to be realized in a, in a very literal 
uh, way in his lifetime. Which is why the experience that he has a little while later must have come as quite a disappointment to him. And he went from a there's God moment to a where's God experience. We find him in Matthew, the 11th chapter, in prison. It says, Matthew tells us, that when John, who was in prison, and he was in prison because he had been doing the work that God had given him to do as a prophet among the people. And he finds himself kind of like Elijah was because of the king's wife (laughs) who took a dislike to him more or less put a price on his head and eventually would have his head removed. But John finds himself in this situation in prison and he heard about the deeds of the Messiah and he sent his disciples to ask him. And I think when he hears about the deeds of the Messiah, there's maybe a mixed feeling that John is having about that because some of it's good as we're going to see in a moment. But also there's a little bit of a a difficulty in reconciling for John between what he thought Jesus, the Messiah, was going to do and what Jesus actually was doing. And so when he heard about these deeds, he sent his disciples, some of his followers, John's followers, to Jesus to ask him a question. And here's the question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the one that that is the fulfillment of all that the, the prophets and the law spoke about? Or are or, or you sort of like me, someone who's preparing the way for the great one to come? Because even though you're doing some awesome things, it's not exactly what I expected you to be. And in that where's God experience that John has in a prison cell, and with the high expectations that he had being sort of shattered, it's not hard to understand how John came to have the experience that he was having. So he sends these messengers to Jesus, and look at what Jesus does in response to that. In verse 4, Jesus replied to these messengers, and he tells them, go back. Go back and report to John what you see and hear. I want you to tell him about what's going on, and here's what's going on. Jesus says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, I want you to go back to John in his prison cell, and I want you to tell him about all of the wonderful, glorious, and good things that I am doing for everyone else. Because Jesus is not going to come and spring John out of prison. He's not going to pull some sort of miraculous levers in order to get him out of jail for free. In fact, as I said a moment ago, John is going to remain there until Herodias, the king's wife, has his head removed. And so sometimes that's a difficulty for us as well, isn't it? It's not only that we're going through a hard time, but when we look around us, it seems like everybody else's life is going so very smoothly. Everybody else has everything going their way. We look at their Instagram life and compare it with our real life, and we think everyone else has it made, and I am the only one that's going through these troubles and these struggles. But John especially really was in a bad place. 
I can't imagine what a jail in that sort of situation must have been like. But when you get closed in and you're in a cave, as we saw Elijah last night, or a prison cell like John is here, it's very easy again for this negative feedback loop to begin running in our mind. And we have these where's God experiences because of the gap between what we thought was going to happen and what we're actually experiencing. But Jesus not only tells them to go back and relate this message to John, but he also tells, him to tell, he tells them to tell him one final thing. He says, and tell John this, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I want you to tell John about all these wonderful things that I'm doing. And implicit in that, I think, is yes, I am the one that you have been waiting for. And I want John to understand that even though I'm not going to be there to change his personal circumstance, that I don't want him to stumble because of that. Don't stumble because of the way that I choose to do things. I am the one, and therefore you need to have confidence in me in the way that I relate to other people and in the way that I'm relating to you. And trust me. And I think that's going to be a challenge that all of us are going to have to face at some point in time in our life. Are we going to stumble over the way Jesus chooses to govern the world, the way he chooses to govern our lives, and not get caught up in the struggle of comparing ourselves with the lives of other people around us? The disciples continued to struggle with this. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, we have that story in the Gospel of John where Peter is restored after his, his, his denial of Christ. And as they're walking along the beach, Jesus begins to tell Peter that he also is going to experience suffering and death. And Peter, do you remember what he does? He looks back over his shoulder and sees John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus' answer was, with what goes on between John and me is between John and me. You do what I've called you to do. And so can we accept the lot that Jesus gives us in life and not stumble because of the way that he chooses to govern the world? That was the encouragement that he wanted to give to John. And it wasn't because he had a low opinion of John. He goes on in the same passage to begin to tell those who are gathered around listening that there was none in the uh, old covenant era that was the equal of John. He was the greatest of all those who had come before him. And so the fact of the matter is, just because your life is plagued with difficulty, disappointment, and suffering has nothing to do with the affection or the appreciation that the Lord may have for you. But it seems like this is a recurring theme. Not only do we see the psalmist experiencing that, Elijah experiencing that, John the Baptist experiencing that. It makes me wonder, what if God is indifferent? What if God doesn't care? I think a person at this point in history might have some justification for allowing those kinds of doubts to creep in. Maybe that's why there's one other story that I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on tonight. 
And it's a story that if any other, leave, if, if these others leave any doubt, this one removes all doubt as to whether or not Jesus cares when our heart is broken. It's a story found in John, the 11th chapter, and it's a story about a man whose name was Lazarus, and he was sick. He was from Bethany, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and he, he was the, the, uh, the brother of Mary and her sister Martha. These are people who are known to us in Scripture. In fact, he goes on in verse 2 to say that this Mary, the one he's talking about, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So it's like as we read that, we put the two together and we say, oh, okay, it's that Lazarus, it's that Mary and Martha, it's the, the, this family. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, who's not in Bethany, who's a few days' journey away, and they sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now think about that expression for just a moment. Lord, the one you love is sick. So they, they, they send a message, and that's the message. Lord, the one you love is sick. So close, apparently, was the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus that his name need not even be mentioned. It's just simply the fact that your friend, the one that is so dear to you, that you love so much, he's sick. And knowing that the message is from Mary and Martha, Jesus would immediately recognize who this was. And, and they knew how Jesus had cared for other sick people. They undoubtedly had been witness to some of the miracles that Jesus of, of healing that Jesus had performed on other sick people. And if he did it for strangers, if he did it for Gentiles, if he did it for sinners, then surely Jesus will do the same for the one that he loves I mean, that's the expectation, right? And so the next verse is quite shocking to us because it says, now Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So if, if we had any doubt before, John makes it explicit in that verse. And then it says that because he loved them, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he hurried from where he was onto Bethany. I mean, that's what we expect it to say, right? But instead it says, no, he stayed where he was two more days. He stayed where he was two more days. That's hard to explain, isn't it? Why, why would he do that? If this is his friend that he loves dearly, and he knows that he's sick, and he has the power to do something about it, why would he stay two more days? And in fact, during the two more days that Jesus stayed where he was, Lazarus became sicker and sicker and weaker until he died. And I can only imagine what the scene must have been like for Mary and Martha and for Lazarus and that, for that matter, during this intervening period. Mary and Martha are there at the side, bedside of their beloved brother. His declining health and his situation growing graver and they're telling him, hold on, hold on just a little bit longer. We've sent a message the master is coming. You know he loves you. He's going to be here. 
And the hours go by and nothing. And then finally, he gets so weak that he takes his last breath and he departs this world. And maybe even then, because he had already at this point raised some from the dead, they're thinking, uh, he's going to show up. And others begin to come in and say, well, it's time now to, to do something with the body. And they're just like, hold on just a little bit longer because he still will be here. But he doesn't come. And so finally they prepare the body, they wrap it up, embalming it as was their custom with the spices, and they put him in the tomb. And I think that maybe that's part of why we find that when Jesus does finally show up, that when the sisters hear that he has come, they both had the same response. They said to Jesus, first Mary and then, or first Mary and then Martha, come and have the same, same conversation with Jesus. And both of them say to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I, I can't help but think there's both expressions of faith and disappointment in that statement. Faith that we know you could have done something, but also disappointment in that you didn't. That you knew about this and you delayed. You didn't come. I know you could have done something, but you chose not to do so. And so we are left to wonder about what the reason for all of this is, but I would argue that it is out of love that he waited because they needed to see him not merely as the healer of the sick, but as the resurrection and the life. In fact, Jesus, before he he left where he was to come to Bethany, after Lazarus had died, he tells them that Lazarus has died and I am glad for your sake that we were not there, that I wasn't there to heal him when he was sick. I'm glad that my friend that I love dearly and his grieving sisters, that I wasn't there to heal Jesus, heal Lazarus for your sake. In other words, it almost seems that Jesus is saying, I'm letting this process play out. I'm letting this happen. I'm letting Lazarus die when I could have done something about it because there's something that I am going to do that when we finally get there, is going to change your perception of me and your relationship to me and the relationship of all who ever hear this story in a most profound and meaningful way. In a way that will have tremendous meaning and significance to anyone who has ever lost a child, who has ever lost a brother or sister, who has ever lost a parent too soon, a husband, a wife, Because we come to see Jesus not as only the one who can heal the leper, give sight to the blind, but who is indeed the resurrection and the life. And so they make their way from there toward the tomb. And as they are on their way, we're told that Jesus becomes very moved in his spirit. 
And in the shortest verse of the Bible, it says simply that Jesus wept. John, the writer of this, that gives us this account of this story, tells us in the earlier part of this book that God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to reveal the character and nature and heart of God to mankind. Because there was no way that we could ever really relate to, understand, or appreciate who God is and how he feels about us apart from God entering into our world and experiencing it in the way that we experience it so that we could, with our senses, be able to form a connection between God and man. And that happens in the embodied, in the word become flesh, as he puts it. And I love that short verse because it shows me that Jesus became so ingrained, so involved, so completely and emotionally engaged with his creation and with his people that he could enter into their suffering and their sorrow. Even knowing what he was about to do, he is so moved by the grief of Mary and Martha and all, maybe just the fact of of death itself and the whole thing is so overwhelming that we see the great heart of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ as he pauses, moved in his spirit, he weeps. And when the people saw it, they looked at that, they could see it, and they said, look how he loved him. That's meaningful to you and me because as Peter, who was also there watching this, would write in his letters to Christians a little while later that when you're burdened with cares and worries, you can cast all your cares on him because, he says, he cares for you. How do you know, Peter? Because I saw it. And I saw how Jesus formed bonds with other people and how he loved them and how he cared about their griefs and their burdens and their anxieties and their sorrows. He cares. And not only does he care, he has the broad enough shoulders to bear the burden that you can't. So cast your cares on him because he cares for you. The story goes on that as Jesus approached the tomb once more deeply moved, he came to the tomb and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And he says, take away the stone. But Lord, Martha said. Stop what you're doing. I know that there had been a couple of instances where somebody died and in a few moments later you raised them from the dead. This is a different situation altogether. You missed it. There was a window of opportunity for you to respond to our message when you could have come and and you could have done something about it. But Lord, by now, there's a bad odor. For he's been in there for four days. And Jesus said, "Did did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And I think now we're getting very much to the heart of why, because Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he stayed two more days. 
because he wanted them to see him for so much more than what they could possibly imagine. And now he says, if you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, you're going to see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's going to pray. He's going to pray right there with the stone rolled away and the body in the in the tomb, and he's going to pray, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He is confident that the Father is going to respond to his prayer. He says, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here and the benefit of those in Little Rock, Arkansas, 2,000 years later who will read this story and, and see the glory of God. I said this for the benefit of the people here that they may believe that you sent me. That I am come from the bosom of the Father. That I am revealing the nature and character of God Himself. And that I'm not a false prophet. I'm not acting on my own authority, but that I am truly a revelation and reflection of who you are. And when he had said this, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. It says that the dead man came out. The one who had been there for four days, the decomposition process had already become advanced and the dead man came out and his hands and feet wrapped with the strips of linen and a cloth around his face and Jesus has to tell them go take off the clothes and let him go because they were all doing what you and I would have been doing there we would have been standing there with our jaws dropped because the people then believed what people now believe and that is that the dead don't rise that this wasn't going to happen, but now they had seen the glory of God and they had seen something in Jesus that they had missed before. It makes me think that maybe one of the reasons why the waves keep coming is because sometimes there are things about God and our relationship with Him that we cannot experience until we have spent some time in the cave until we've spent some time wondering if we're going to be able to stay afloat, until we have passed through the valley of the shadow of death and our expectations of what He is going to do have been shattered. Our expectations of what He is have been shattered and so that something more accurate, something more real, something better can be built up in its place. In the days of Isaiah, the people felt forgotten by God. And they asked, why have you forsaken us? Why have you forgotten about us, God? And I love the way Isaiah answers the question. He says to the people two things. He says, number one, a nursing mother will never forget her child. It's like biologically impossible for a nursing mother to forget about her child. But he says, even if she could or should forget her child, I will never forget you. And then he says something else. I think it's in Isaiah 49. He says, I have 
written your names in the palms of my hand. And that in and of itself had to have been a powerful message to the audience in Isaiah's day, but how much more so for us. The, the, the word there I'm told in Hebrew, and I have no background in Hebrew, but what I am told is that it literally is engraved as with a hammer and chisel on the palms of my hands. And when I think about that, I cannot help but think about Jesus on the cross with the, the nails driven through the palms of his hands, engraving, as it were, our names there assuring us that no matter what, we will never be forgotten by him. And that there may be any number of reasons why he has not met the expectation that we had for what he would do, when he would do it, but that he has a reason. And the reason is not that he's indifferent and not that he doesn't care and not that he is not there. But maybe just maybe because like Lazarus, He loves us, so he waits. In fact, maybe a good thing for us to say whenever we feel like expressing, God, why have you forgotten me? Is to replace that with, Lord, I know that you can. And sometimes you wait, and I can trust you while I'm waiting. Lord, I know that you can. I've seen you do it for others. I know that you can do this. I know that sometimes you wait. And when you wait, you have your reasons. And that's why I can trust you in the waiting. When Jesus went to that cross, and our names were quite literally engraved on the palms of his hands, He cried out a cry that just runs through my head over and over. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a lot of things that theologians argue about all of that. I will just say, certainly it was the experience that Jesus was going through in that moment was one of utter abandonment. And like Psalm 42, those enemies who looked upon him mocked him and taunted him and said, where is your God now? And from all appearances, Jesus was completely and utterly God forsaken. Perhaps, as we often think, the Father may have turned his back on Jesus. I don't understand and pretend to understand all of the deep mysteries of this. But Jesus, I know there, experienced abandonment. He experienced what it is to be utterly forsaken in order that I might be eternally remembered. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. That God came into this world to show us his love and his care for us. To write and engrave our names on the palms of his hands so that we would never ever be forgotten. And that's such a powerful thing to me. Because I know that if Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I would be remembered by God, that I can remember that in his love for me in his darkest hour, then I won't doubt his love for me in my darkest hour.
If I remember his love for me in his darkest hour, I will not doubt his love for me in my darkest hour. Is that powerful for you? Is that a lifeline that you could hold on to? Is that something that you think might could help keep you afloat when the waves just keep on coming? I hope that it is. I think it's God's gift to us and his assurance to us. And that ought to be something to keep us afloat. And if you're not a Christian tonight, we want once more to extend that invitation that Jesus offers. John tells us later in that same book that the story of Lazarus is recorded in. That Jesus did many other things besides those that are written in this book. But he says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is not just a great man, a great teacher, a leader, but that you may believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Are you ready to put your faith in the one who gave everything for you? Are you ready to commit your life wholly to him and follow him wherever he leads and be united with him in the waters of baptism? If you're ready for that, I know that the brethren here are ready to assist you in that regard. Why don't you come while we stand? and?